This is Joe Ancy with the University of Oklahoma College of Law and the executive director of their Energy Center. Thank you for joining us today, a regular here on the program. And yesterday we had uh, Josh Robbins on, Beachwood Marketing. He gave us an update from NAEP. Today we've got Joe Dancy on, so he can give us a update, and then I'll ask you a few of the observations that uh, Josh saw as well and see how we kind of go from there, get a multi-layered perspective of NAEP this year. So how are you doing? Hey, really good. It was a great uh, Houston conference. We had a good time. The uh, the first thing I noticed, Jason, was in the last three years, every year it seems like you get a few more people, a few more booths, and seemed to be a lot more people this year. They had 12,000, I think last year they had 11, the year before 10,000 and a number, and there seemed to be a lot more booths. And I tell you why I know that, because the, they pretty much extended the entire convention center. Yeah, they, there was some room on the end for a few additions, but I truck my mileage just walking back and forth from our booth to other booths and i put on you know probably close to six miles just going up and down and talking to people and etc tromping around the uh, uh over two days and tromping around the uh, convention center so that and it seemed like most people were probably more interactive in the past walking past some booths and of course, you know, I work for University of Oklahoma, so I'm not there buying. I'm not there really selling. We have we had a booth for our um, student society and for our online program, but uh, generally, I like to just talk to people. And but if there's if they're negotiating or talking to, you know, it looks like real business. I don't want to step in and uh, interrupt uh, a transaction, and and so. Uh, there were a number of p- folks I wanted to talk to. I really didn't get a chance to, but the number that I did, you know, most of them were pretty optimistic. And at the end, just uh, the few booths around us, uh, you know, I went over and they were selling prospects in Texas and elsewhere and asked them, you know, what do you think of this year's conference? And they said, God, you know, we got you know much more response than we thought there'd be. And uh, so that was sort of the consensus. It was it was a good program. I will tell you, um, there were a few booths with some North Dakota acreage. One of which I didn't uh, wanted to talk to them, but I didn't get a, a chance to do that because they they had a crowd in front of their group. But uh, in the morning, I went by and I looked at their geological. Oh, they had a bunch of geological maps and stuff on it. It was, looked pretty interesting. Of course, it was a oil prospect and. Mainly, Jason, you know, it's still, you know, your prospects are mainly oil-based still. It's tough to make money on natural gas at $2.70 or whatever it's selling for now. And the consensus seems to be we got plenty of natural gas. And even with natural gas liquids, you know, the economics just aren't quite as attractive as oil um, oil shows, which is correct. It seemed to be a lot of, uh, a lot of Louisiana, a lot of Texas plays, a number of Oklahoma it was it's pretty geographically um, mixed this year. And one of the things that I found, and every year I go, it seems to be you know more and more companies selling software, technology, tracking, just data stuff. And uh, I don't know whether that's a trend or whether I, I do know, like you know, apparently. Um, you know, all this software and technology and big data analysis, you know, it must be profitable and there must be some interesting niches. Um, I'm not the brightest bulb in the world when it comes to technology with regard to, you know, some of the, uh, some of what was being sold, but it was, it was sort of interesting to see. Uh, and 
past that, the reception seemed to be um, well attended. We went to the I went to the Haynes and Boone reception, which is uh, I've worked with their energy attorneys now for about twenty or twenty five years doing educational programs, and we actually. We took our, and it's pretty interesting, we have a virtual reality um, shot of the Permian Basin as well as the Santa Rita number one discovery well and the Permian Basin, which is the discovery well for the Permian Basin. And you put the virtual reality headset on and you can fly over um, these areas and you actually can look up and down. It's like the, it's like you are on, in a helicopter. And the, the it was probably the most impressive um presentation booth presentation by any educational institution in the history of nape and part of the reason is i that's a big bragging but i but the part of the reason is most educational institutions i mean you'd stop by and gee here's our booklet on our program here's a pen you know here's an alumni sticker and we actually you know when you sit down and you actually have a interaction with the students and interaction with the computer program and you actually learn something because there's a narration explaining you know what's going on it, it worked pretty well so so overall it was a good um a good program uh, i guess one of the things that came up you know and this has come up before is uh, water is an issue especially in uh texas west texas and new mexico uh for fracking and because the amount of water needed is substantial uh sand seems to be less of an issue because you know a bunch of local sand mines apparently have opened up in texas oklahoma i don't know about new mexico but you you don't have quite the backlog getting all that stuff down from wisconsin um man that's that's really turned into a competitive market isn't it yeah boy glad i'm not in that business when they it was it looked really attractive for a while and it's like geez this is look how because they're using so much of it and uh and actually it is interesting here in Oklahoma City or Norman, Oklahoma, I drive I-35 quite a bit, and it is shocking how many trucks are full of sand that are running. We have a couple mines just uh, down by Ada, which is southern southeast Oklahoma, sand mines that have been actually mined for 100 years, Jason, and it's interesting. Um, and I talked to the manager. He's actually going to come visit my class here in about a month. But he said, you know, originally with the fracking, he goes, we were not one of the preferred providers because of the size of our sand was too fine. It was like a hundred mesh, I think, or smaller. And he goes, as it turns out, as time has gone on, the demand for that size mesh has gone way up. And, and so I asked him, you know, roughly, you know, I was just curious how much, how much, how much that sand was worth in these trucks. And so we figured it out. It's about a thousand dollars a truckload is what he, they're delivering. And, for H well, I didn't ask how many trucks, but I, I would guarantee you there'd probably be at least at least a hundred truckloads of uh, sand for most of these, you know, mile long or mile and a half long laterals. Just, you know, just based on just based on, you know, just rough back of the envelope calculations. So mm-hmm. um, that was pretty cool. And, and I guess yeah, lastly, I was okay, gonna uh, I was gonna mention one other industry that seems to be pretty competitive, and I wanted to ask you if it was seen that way down at nap is the environmental services anything to do with you know clean up or some environmental solutions that sort of thing is a big wave in the last few years has seemed to be pretty competitive too because everybody's got their own proprietary uh chemical type you know solution and so everybody's bragging about why theirs is better than everybody else's it was that at all at nap this year 
Well, there were a number of environmental folks. I talked to them a little bit. Of course, I teach uh, you know, a little bit oil and gas environmental law. I talk a little bit about cleanup and technology. And uh, like you say, though, the technology is it is interesting, both the cleanup of oil spills and of saltwater uh, spills. I mean, the the technology is getting better and better, as well as just the um, you know when you when you revegetate, especially salt damaged lands or oil damaged lands, the um, the expertise is getting better. And I don't know whether it's genetics or whether it's the seeds or whatever, but you know if you look. And this is a story they tell. Now, whether this is really the case in the field, Lord knows, Jason. But, it, yeah, they tell us, you know, we, it's easier now with the current technology to, you know, re, revegetate and reclaim a oil site than it has been historically. And, and also the fact that with these laterals, you know, instead of drilling, you know, five wells, you're only drilling one. And right. so your pad is much smaller. Your, your reclamation area is much smaller. The surface owner supposedly is happier because he doesn't have to, you know, take his tractor around five different pump jacks. But um, anyway, they, they well, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm a huge fan of rig mats. These, um, huh? these, these mats you lay down before you, you start the drilling process uh, we did quite a bit with Montana Rigmat. Nice company, Kalispell area, Montana, ship all over the world. And he got me to really understand uh, the reason behind the significance of these rig mats. And, you know, there's a bunch of different companies. Uh, but when you, when you lay them down, the floral comes back. So your, your, your restoration project is you got your native floral coming back. You don't have to go find those plants again. You don't have to do all those different things. So to me, I look at something as simple as that, you know, putting down some boards basically just to, when then when you're done, take them out. And of course, if there's any spills or anything like that, it, it, it catches them as well. Um, so that, that, that's just one example I wanted to throw in there with what you were talking about, you know, some of the advancements. Sometimes we, when we think of innovation, it's all got to be, you know, blips and, and computers. And sometimes, right. you know, the wheel is still a pretty innovative tool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting with rig mats. It's interesting you mentioned that because years ago, you know, whenever you were in sort of a marshy area or a swamp or, you know, you needed a wetlands permit, you know, a lot of times the wetlands permit or the, the landowner or the regulatory agency would require you to, to use those man and like you say the great thing is if you if you're over a you know like sort of a marshy area that will support machinery you throw those things down there and and literally you're not digging up the marsh and when you're done you pull it up and you know lord knows like you say they they revegetate itself because you haven't messed up the soil the chemistry the um the seas and everything else so it's pretty it's a pretty cool yeah it's a pretty cool technology and i didn't see and again, I really didn't you know, talk to many environmental, but they were, they were there. There were a number of booths dealing okay. with uh, remediation. Joe Dancy's our guest, University of Oklahoma. He's uh, executive director over at the Energy Center there. Uh, University of Oklahoma Law. I have to make sure I clarify that. Because uh, that is different than U University of Oklahoma. You guys are a satellite campus? No, well, actually, we're right on campus. We're just oh, on okay. the south part of campus. and Everybody is sort of, uh, OU is such a big energy um I love uh, it. Campus. I mean, love we have, Oklahoma. You know, we had our first. We had, we were the first geology school nationwide. Opened up, I think, uh, 1901, 1902. Professor Gould. There's a Gould uh, 
geology building. Now it's they actually a Gould archaeology or Gould uh, architect building. Uh, they renamed it and gave our geologists a new program. We were the first uh, petroleum engineering program of course we have we were the first petroleum landman program and of course over at the law school i don't think we were the first but you know we've been one of the longest uh, energy law programs around so it's a there's a lot of uh there's a lot of history here which sort of makes it exciting for me to be around so uh in any event the I was going to say, I, I love Oklahoma. I've got some great memories uh, in Oklahoma and a lot of toll booth memories too, but that's a different story. The, uh, the, uh, my favorite memory of Oklahoma, I, was, uh, I, was, I used to be a baseball player and uh, played the AAU tournaments, and we were down in Oklahoma one year, and the um, state of North Dakota All-Stars I was on, and you know we'd travel and play the different teams, that sort of thing. And uh, the second day of the tournament, we ended up playing the Oklahoma All-Stars the first night. We lost 8 nothing. The next night, um, we played Wisconsin, and they had a 6-7 pitcher, a guy, a pitcher that was 6-7. Okay, we're 16 years old. Okay, so wow. this, exactly. He ended up going to the pros, but uh, he pitched a one-hitter against us, and I got the hit because the ball was coming right from my head, and I tried to move to get out of the way, and it hit the bat, and I outran it. So I got our one hit. <laughs> Otherwise, that guy would have pitched a no-hitter against us. That's my, that's my favorite memory of Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, anyway, but so, okay, uh, how about the, the, the money side of things? Were there any, you know, merger acquisition rumblings? Was there any sort of capital cap talk? You know what I mean? Just talk turkey a little bit with me. What would you overhear? Yeah, what I sort of overheard, and it was sort of interesting just asking about, you know, the financing and the, the private uh, equity and the private capital and the public capital and uh, talking to a number of folks, the public companies with uh, oil and gas, they have done relatively poorly because the outlook for oil and gas here uh, in the futures curve, so so. For a lot of companies, you know, the exit strategy of build, you know, some, you know, build a, a nice little field of 10 or 20 wells and, you know, 100, um, you know, drilling locations and sell it to a public company, that hasn't worked real well, and at least lately. And, you know, talking to some people, they say until oil prices, you know, get up much above 50 or $55 a barrel, you're probably not going to see a lot of activity. Natural gas is sort of like... Um, Oh, your crazy cousin! They don't know. Nobody really wants to deal with natural gas because they don't think you can make money at, you know, two seventy-five or two fifty, and they think there's so much of it that all you have to do is you know stick a straw in the ground. Um, The uh, yeah, this sort of interesting. They just the feedback. I talked to some lease brokers in different areas, and they said, you know, there is so much um, money flowing into the sector that, um, it is a little bit concerning about, you know, some of these lease prices, especially in the Permian basin, um, that, you know, when you, you, you roll out the the prices you're paying for leases now, it, it makes the economic returns a lot more modest than they would have been otherwise. And I guess that's, I guess that's bad for the investors, but I, on the other hand, if you're a mineral owner, uh, or if you're a company with some leasehold, you know that you know, that's not all that bad. But um, so that was sort of some of the feedback on the financial end of things. I okay. I was sort of asking around, you know, gee, what do you guys are you optimistic? What are you basing your capital expenditures on? And 
Oh, gee, Jason, the feedback I got is, you know, the uh, the price of oil and the price of gas is no one seems to be able to predict it. It's so cyclical. It's so volatile. You know, you got everybody trading futures these days. Um, it's really difficult for folks to plan, which is bad for, well, number one, it's bad for, you know, your manpower. You don't know, and it's bad for contracting for your rigs and completion crews. And let me stop right there. Another point that came up was in the Permian, as they get these pipelines connected here, probably by year end to get all the oil and natural gas out of the Permian, they said there's a whole bunch of drilled and uncompleted wells and everybody's going to want to, as soon as they see that pipeline capacity, they're going to run and want to complete their wells. Mm-hmm. And they said there's going to be a huge shortage of completion crews that are competent, and there'll be, it'll be a, you know, some people think that'll be a frenzy of activity. Um, and I, and because there won't be enough people, and actually they, the completion uh, operations for the most part have not have laid have actually reduced the size of their crews because they don't have enough work because everybody isn't completing and they're just drilling and you know you don't complete a well if you don't have a pipeline to sell it into so when they start up again you know they don't think there's gonna be enough people there's not enough people in midland you know midland's going about 100 miles an hour right now so you can't go a heck of a lot faster sure um they say it's gonna be it's gonna be sort of exciting to see it might be a big bottleneck it might be uh it's gonna be a definite tweak you're gonna see a tweak because this is um What's interesting, what's going on right now, in my opinion, what I'm hearing a lot of is this is remnants of that time before the downturn. And so people are not sure if they want to save money in order to make money or if they want to spend money in order to make money. And so that's the uncertainty in the marketplace, obviously. Uh, People are optimistic. Things are looking good. All projections point that way. But people are a little bit scared because of the last downturn, because that same feeling, that same energy was there um, before it went to what, what do we have, about a year and a half, two years of a downturn, was it? Right, right. And, you know, um, and, and you know that 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 slows things down. Up in, up in the Bakken, they were still putting out a million barrels a day. So, I mean, at some some people are still pumping out oil, but I see where the ripple into the completion crews could be an issue when the kind of the boomerang effect happens on a few things. Um, what was, the, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, and you kind of mentioned it with the completion crews, and kind of in some of our bantering emails back and forth, I noticed that the word poached engineers, and I wanted to ask you about that because back in the early days, at least in the Bakken, there was such a demand for pipe fitters, electricians, and and um, uh, yeah, basically pipe fitters and electricians, plumbers, electricians, and pipe fitters. But the electricians, they were having a hard time even going out to dinner because they would get hired going out to dinner. Someone would just <laughs> steal them, right? I'm serious. And so the, the companies in Fargo on the east side of the state, they stopped sending workers out to western North Dakota because they wouldn't come back. <laughs> and, and, and because there's such a shortage of them, the company would have to hire that person back when the downturn came because there's everybody needs electricians. And so we kind of joke that they were demigods out in the Bakken because there was such a shortage of them. And so that's what that poached engineer um, kind of back and forth reminded me of is what's going on with the engineers? Because I, I think it's kind of is there a shortage of them? Are they so sought after or just kind of talk to me about that? 
it's an, I actually, I had lunch with, uh, I just sat at a table at random at lunch uh, the first day, and uh, the people were talking there, and I won't mention the company they're with, but they noted, noted a number of companies were afraid to send you know any of their technical staff, including their engineers, that had any experience, because um, you know what would happen is a competitor would go up and you know if you're an engineer of work just give an area for 10 years and you essentially you can go up and talk to them you essentially are doing an interview although the party that's talking to you doesn't know they're being interviewed and hell if you like the person it's like geez you know how would you like to come work for you know xyz corporation we'll give you a hell of a raise and and uh and so they were talking that that some of these firms and i guess this is from last year but also this year they were afraid to bring some of their more senior technical folks because of the, you know, including engineers, geologists, geophysicists, what have you, because they would be poached by competitors. And I, and then I, you know, talked to a few other people and they said, that is, that's not uncommon, even, you know, past the engineer to the landman and even to the attorney standpoint where, you know, people are being, you know, quote, poached, which, which I think is, you know, not all that bad. I mean, it's one of those deals that this means, if you have a certain skill set that you've developed, I mean, as you know, it's so cyclical here. If you can, you know, make a good living and get a good, you know, good raise, um, fantastic. Although I, I can understand a company just the efficiency when you have people coming in and out of the door. It, uh, it does tend to make things much more inefficient and uh, um, and create you know certain issues. But it was, it was interesting to see, and I had, to, I, had to, I got a good chuckle out of it, and I, I. It was totally, of course, my deal when they when it came up, I said, my guess, if you told me that people didn't want to bring their senior people is, is you know, the reason they didn't want to bring them is because, you know, they probably go to the receptions, drink too much and spill all the technical beans to the competitors. I said, no, 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 that's not the problem. It's the problem is, you know, these folks go to the reception and, and then they don't come back to our table. They're hired <laughs> by someone else down on the next row. And I just, I had to laugh. It was pretty funny. Well, in, in the early days in the Bakken, I mean, they, they were doubling the salaries. I mean, they uh, were they were just flat out. I mean, and how how could you refuse it? You're you know you're an electrician. You're making a good wage, and you're supporting your family. And all of a sudden, you know, we'll double your salary for the next two years. Man, that's yep. That that's that's life changing. You know what I mean? Yep. For, yep. And, yep. Then, exactly. and then of course it's it's completely changing to the company involved, and it's just it's. You hate to blame anybody or you hate to, you know, point fingers because everybody's trying to probably do what's best for their families at the end of the day. But, man, what what a just a real sticky situation to be in, you know? Yeah, well, it's, you know, unfortunately for the industry, it's not all that good. Of course, every industry, like, you know, I grew up in the Detroit area, and, of course, the auto industry is... Just, just the same way. The you know they're either hiring left and right or they're laying off, and you mm-hmm. go work for them. And it's um, and, and I guess the the key to all this, Jason. I mean, I've thought about it. I'm getting older now, but I mean, really, when whether whatever you do, you need to continue to develop your skill set. You know, something you find interested in, whether you're an electrician, whether you're a plumber, whether you're an engineer, geologist, attorney, landman. Just because things are so cyclical. You know, you need to have a backup that, you know, gee, when, you know, when the oil bus comes, then, you know, you can work on water or you can work on environmental remediation or you can, you know, go to a different, uh, go to work for the plastics uh, or the refiners or, or the world. But, uh, it, it, and of course, that's life. It's, you know, when you're younger, it's always 
you're always just, I mean, I was petrified that, gee, they're having cutbacks and I'll be one of the, you know, what am I going to do if I get laid off? And in the end, it almost always works out. You, you find something and even if it's not your first choice, you develop a separate skill set and you go out and, and you're better for it. And it's, uh, um, and, and, but it's not, it's not comfortable obviously you know when you're in that situation of course now we're in the boom time that was the fun time the, the bad time will be you know in the next bust when you know when it's not like you know poaching elect, elect, electricians it's like gee we have four electricians we only need two you know you know who are right. we gonna get rid of so anyway joe dancy university of oklahoma law with us he's the executive director at the energy center uh talking a little bit about nape some of the Things that happened at this year's conference, setting the tone, checking out the themes for the energy industry this year. And uh, just a couple questions left. I wanted to ask you about uh, the students have the podcast going, Alex Epstein uh, in your class. And the other thing I quickly wanted to ask you before we got to that was, um, hang on here, let me see. See, I can't be writing these things down. Uh, oh, uh, drug testing. Uh, was there much of drug testing in NAPE this year? The reason I ask is I can't remember if it was you or if it was someone else mentioned how, uh, some oil companies were starting or some oil and construction companies were starting to have chief drug officers because of, of, of this increase of, uh, opioids and other drugs, you know, these, Oh, that's a fantastic question. The um, I didn't see any boost, you know, rec, you know, promoting drug testing or chief. And I didn't, hear, but I have heard from the great. Um, obviously, when you're running, whether you're driving a truck, whether you're running equipment, it's incredibly potentially dangerous. So you need to make sure your people. Just from a standpoint, uh, you know, both the regulatory and personnel and safety standpoint, make sure they they are not um involved with illicit substances and so you know most companies have a drug type of drug protocol and even a had and actually i've corresponded with and i forget you know she's out in midland who was uh, we just connected on linkedin about six months ago and i just asked her you know your chief you know drug officer for this relatively big size driller and she said uh yeah she goes they they have there are issues out and, and obviously there are issues in any industry and and uh it is interesting to see i will tell you um what's interesting in oklahoma specifically in the scoop and stack and i don't know in north dakota but they've actually sort of uh legalized marijuana here for medical purposes and one of the problems the companies are having now is historically they always given you a drug test and say you know either pass or fail and if you fail you know, I don't know whether you're terminated or go through rehabilitation or whether they have some program. There's a protocol. Mm -hmm. So now with the new marijuana you know, legislative, you have the right as an individual to use marijuana for, you know, stress, whatever. Um, the companies are having to relook because they really can't fire people because it's legal to use marijuana in Oklahoma, at least on the state level. Now, on the federal level, Lord knows, but I don't know what the legal answer is, but I know. You know, some of the firms here in the scoop and stack are wrestling with it, and they said it's going to get challenged. Thing, it's going to get yeah, challenged. That, well, the last, you know, the last thing you need, and even if they're using the marijuana for, 
for legit, which they, if they have a prescription, I assume it's legit. You know, if there's an accident and someone's hurt, you know, the first thing the party who's hurt's going to say is, "Gee, you know, you were negligent company because you let you let this person drive a truck when you know clearly they should not have been behind the wheel." And um, I don't know enough. I'm not enough of an employment attorney to, uh, <laughs> or or actually informed about all this stuff and and uh, to have to looked at it, but it it's an interesting issue and it, and it is a problem and it's a real actually, issue. It's a, I yeah, mean, I, you know, you're talking about Colorado. There's, you know, the Nile Brera's in Colorado, and there's a right. number of companies out of Denver. And mm-hmm. so you're talking about full-on rec- recreational there that goes beyond right. the medicinal part. So the medicinal part will get challenged, like you mentioned earlier, with it, just like a prescription, prescription drugs, whatever right. it is. At some point, somebody's going to say, you know, my, my uh, Pineapple Express and my bong is a prescription. And, right. and, you know, and, and it'll probably, they'll probably be right. They'll probably win on that. Who knows? I'm not right, sure. Right, right. It's, it's some of the rec ones and it's some of just how it stays in your system for 30 days. And a number of those different things that I think that these, these drug officers, these chief drug officers got their work cut out for them. Um, I think they're going to be working hand in hand with attorneys trying to figure out how to walk some of these um, legal landmines that, you know, could be potentially there because, you know, oil and gas pays very well. And it's not a lot to ask to not do drugs while you're working. And some people are going to challenge that, unfortunately. You know what I mean? I mean, I, right. I, right, right. I, I don't know how else to phrase it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but so, okay, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, anything really public at NAPE about that yet. But no, the, the, no, the, the, the rumblings are still happening is what we're getting at. Yes, rumblings are still happening. Now that you say that, boy, that would be a real interesting uh, view. You, and of course, they probably don't need to advertise no. probably the demand for their, you know, but if they had a booth, I guarantee you that would have been, that would have been an interesting discussion. So, or even a panel um, discussion yep. one year or something like that, maybe over a lunch or, you know, just some of the, so, so some of the trends and things to look for, some of the things that other companies are trying and doing, et cetera. Uh, right. Okay, well, well, let's get past the drug talk here. Uh, let's go to, to the podcast, the University of Oklahoma Energy Student Podcast, and you also had Alec, Alex Epstein in your class, so let's kind of talk a little bit about that as we conclude here. Yeah, well, actually, Alex uh, Skyped in or Zoomed into our class yesterday. Of course, he wrote the moral case for fossil fuels. He's the best-selling New York Times um author and one reason jason i wanted him to come to the class is you know i have i have 69 students in my class two years ago when i first started teaching there was 11 students in this the prior professor and the reason they like my classes is i'm objective i bring in people like alex and most of these students don't know anything this is their first exposure this is the survey course for energy so i want to give them a view because you hear so often, especially among the younger set, that you know if you're promoting oil and gas, it's like you're promoting tobacco or you're promoting something that is incredibly evil for you or cancerous or something. And to hear someone like Alex Epstein with his book, and he's revising, he's going to have a new book out here in the near future, but essentially talk about what energy has done for us as far as our living standards, as far as our health, 
our environment is cleaner. And actually, it is interesting because I, I didn't bring it up yesterday, but um, at the beginning of the semester, our environmental society, they played this tape, and essentially it had it was uh, a parody, and they had people singing Oklahoma, but they were talking about you know how the land's getting dirtier and the water's getting more polluted in the air. But in reality, if you go back, our air and our water is much, much cleaner now than it was 50 years ago. And actually, if you go back 100 years, I mean, you go in London, and it was, you know, the, the main rivers were, you know, major cesspools, as well as in the United States, where you just dump your sewage in. So not only is it disgustingly dirty, but it's also a health hazard. And he just explained to the students, it was sort of an interactive give and take, and hopefully we had a little bit of technical difficulties but hopefully we got it recorded so i was going to post it on linkedin later if we if we got a good cut and uh as well as on our podcast but hopefully um you know the students will walk away and say geez you know energy this is not that bad of an area to consider being a career he also noted and i specifically came back to talk to him about you know, you hear everybody now, the young generation especially, it's like oil is bad, you know, wind turbines and solar are good. And Alex took about 10 minutes talking about why wind turbines and solar are not all that good. Is Because number one, they're intermittent. They're not quite all reliable. You need a backup source. Of course, you get up to North Dakota or Minnesota, you know, and they get, you know, they get iced in, they get snowed in. When it got to below minus 20, those wind turbines automatically turn off. So all of a sudden, you have a huge demand on natural gas. And apparently, Minnesota and Michigan, uh, both, you know, number of utilities had to tell their customers, turn down your heat, because the problem is they didn't have enough natural gas to fuel both, you know, the backup generators to generate electricity as well as the heat. So that's, there's some policy issue there that, that are going to have to be addressed, um, you know, in the near future. So that was sort of interesting. It was a very interesting, you know, hour long conversation with Alex and uh, he's quite an interesting guy. Um, I don't, if you've listened to some of his tapes, he's very interesting. I'm not sold on wind myself here. I'm, I, I think that's moving too fast for what is still out there for valid questions. Right. And yeah, so that's, that's interesting to hear other people's well, take on it as well, you know. Well, part of it's just the energy density. You look at the, and I've done the numbers. We have a number of, we have Oklahoma's number two, um, Texas is number one, wind-wise, Iowa. There's sort of a wind belt that goes up there. And, um, part of the problem is just the energy density, you know, versus having a small coal plant or small natural gas plant. Um, you need, you know, thousands of square acres of land to put up these wind turbines. And actually, Jason, I've, I've sort of become, you know, when I first came up, I, was, I really thought they were annoying and disgusting to look at, like a radio antenna. But the more I look at them, the more I sort of don't mind them. But I, a lot of people do. And I, that I understand totally. When you put a wind farm up, you're not just putting up one wind turbine. You're putting up, you know, a small one and have 50. And, you know, more, more so, you know, you're looking at 50 to 100 to 200 wind turbines that are spaced so that they don't interfere with each other and obviously you stick them under a few hundred 400 feet in the air so i mean you can see them for 10 miles away at least and it's uh it there's some real interesting as well as just the the jumping from 
into the grid and out of the grid with your your intermittent power sources you know i've heard it makes managing the grid much more difficult um to make it stable and that's the big goal is you want to have a stable grid with reasonable prices is what is what the uh, regular regulators want you know prices are not prices are not the ultimate driver it's they want it to be stable and uh wind and solar are making it a little bit it's like riding a bicycle on your you know, putting a couple bowling balls on on each arm and trying to stay straight. So it's, uh, you, it's not you, all that easy. You said it right with the bicycle, which is wind and solar work pretty good for personal use type things and for small usage is. And, you know, maybe if they've got a, a wind turbine you can put on your house, you could probably assist with some energy and solar. You know, you could probably charge your batteries and things like that. And there, there's, a, there's a place for them, but this... They're going to replace oil and gas. That's just nonsense talk right now. I mean, um, I was just having this talk with someone yesterday about we don't bring anybody on our we, – we only talk experts on this program. You know that. In fact, right. uh, just to give the listeners um, uh, some evidence behind that, go back and listen to the interview with Joe Dancy from a few months ago, and we're talking about the potentials of the natural gas shortages that we just talked about that the wind energy people said, you got to cut back, otherwise we're going to have natural gas shortages. So right. we, we do know what we're talking about here, and we do prognosticate quite a bit as well. And these wind energy things, um, until they can figure out a way to make it a little bit more economical and a little bit, like you said, density-wise, but the whole idea of getting rid of um, um, of, of oil, oil fossil fuels is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, to me, that that's actually talking to a crazy person because the world is so reliant on fossil fuels that I don't even know how a twenty percent reduction could be done over ten years. Do you know what I mean? And I, yeah, and that's that's Alex's um, story, and actually, and he points out, you know, a third of the world, you know, actually has zero energy. So if you're going to cut out fossil fuels, I mean, you're giving them zero hope to ever have, you know, a car, refrigerator, heater, you know, you're, you know, they're heating their, their uh, abode with, you know, wood or cow dung or something and, and uh, living, you know, very unsanitary conditions, mainly because they don't have energy and energy to clean the water, to clean the air, to, um, you know, get them in the hospital and to the doctor's office and, uh, he goes, so if you, you know, when you hear these climate, um, the, the climate um, fanatics, I guess I would use the word, that, you know, want to shut down all oil and gas production, you know, what they're saying philosophically wise, and Alex is very good at this, he just philosophically goes, what they're saying is, you know, a lot of you will never have, you know, you never have the riches, you'll never have the wealth, you'll never have the lifespan that, you know, someone in the United States would have because they're, they have so much energy to utilize, um, and and it's a good argument. You can't you, you can't say, "Geez, let's just let those you know three billion people, you know, let's just keep them you know in the dark and cold." You can say that, but if that's if that's your philosophy, Alex says, you know, clearly you are not you are not for human betterment. You are you have some other agenda, and he, he says it so well. I mean, if you have not read the moral case for fossil fuels, and I know you have. But if our listeners haven't, you know, it's a book, and actually some of the charts in there are probably some of the best charts 
you can just look at the pictures as charts and you'll, you'll see the story. And even for me, and I've been in the industry, you know, for 30 or 40 years now, you know, when I first bought his book, it's only been out four years. I looked at the charts and they were just, they were stunning. And actually I copied it and I use a lot of them in my classes and say, Hey, this illustrates, you know, uh, you know, our environment's getting cleaner. This illustrates, you know, lifespan and oil use correlates closely, whether you're in India, China, or the United States or elsewhere. So uh, anyway, it's exciting, Jason. Yeah. And I just, for me, this person I was talking to the other day where, you know, we got to get rid of fossil fuels. I just said, well, I'll tell you what, buddy, why don't you come on over here? Cause you're talking to me on your cell phone. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't even make it up. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just like, you know, and, and I told him, I said, listen, if you want to have a discussion about maybe figuring out a new way for soft drinks to come, you know, in, in different packages so those plastic rings aren't there, or maybe maybe making plastic bottles go away and the old aluminum glass bottle cans type things come back, well, that's a start, okay? And I'm sure the oil and gas industry would be all about that because they'll figure out just a new heavier duty or plastic that'll work in the egg industry or work in the other industries. I said, but I get that. that that's a discussion, but you guys don't want to have that. You just want to get rid of it all. Just be done with right. it and, and and have the only industry that's gained employment for the last 10 years is the, yeah, th that's a stat, by the way, that I think is underreported. The only industry that has had a net gain of jobs in the last 10 years, is the oil and gas industry. That's it. Mining, wow. mining. Yeah, all this, uh, you know, technology and innovation and all these other things that we've had come and go over the last 10 years, none of them have sustained. Um, right. Oil and gas has. That's That to me speaks a lot, too. And when you think about how much of uh, innovation is right now directed by oil and gas, it's incredible too. I mean, all that um, is due to hydraulic fracturing. So, all right, let's wrap up here. I see my, um, I've got to uh, look at the clock here. We're getting close to that time. So uh, give give yourself a plug on how um, uh, people can get in touch with you and, and you guys can make some money as either sponsors or alumni or whatever. They have. You're, you're, you're kind of a think tank guy, so it's, yeah, it's well, a little different. <laughs> if you're interested, I mean, if you are interested uh, in uh, further, actually in the energy sector, uh, online programs, University of Oklahoma has an excellent online master's in legal studies program. You don't become a lawyer, but you, in over 15 months, you know, will teach you a lot about oil and gas leasing, property law, water law, et cetera. You do it all online. It's a pretty neat deal. Um, but past that, if you, you know, want to get in contact with me, it's um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect or uh, just send me an email uh, through my email address. It's online, too, on, on the LinkedIn profile. And uh, I'd be happy to correspond. I do get, I mean, it is exciting, Jason. There's, you know, a lot of people in the energy sector, and as you note, know, the technology, the opportunities, the capital, the wealth that's being created, it's not appreciated. Um, well, it, it's appreciated more now than maybe it was four or five years ago, but as people become aware of um, of what's happening with oil and gas and how much we actually have here in the United States, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of stunning to see how dynamic the industry is. So thanks for having me on, Jason.